So dear Lord, uh, we just give you thanks and glory this morning uh, that we will come to you and we will listen and cling to your word. And as we cling to your word, that we will learn uh, what, it, what it really means to be a true disciple and that we will take those words and go out into the world as we were commissioned to do so. And we will be better equipped today than we were yesterday. And so we give you thanks, Lord, that we will, we will cling to these words and we will learn something today. In Jesus' holy name, amen. amen. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 24. And it's kind of a long portion, so we're going to be reading the last part of it. Uh, and what we're doing is we're starting a series next week in the book of Acts. And it's just going to be a continual series. We're just going to keep going and going and going, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, until we understand fully what it means to be a church, right? Um, so Luke, if anyone is familiar with Luke, if you came to the Bible study, you might know a little bit about this. Luke and Acts go hand in hand. They are essentially written to work together. So Acts is the sequel to Luke, if you will. And actually, they end where Luke ends is where Acts picks up. It's the same thing. Um, so Luke is mostly regarded to be written by uh, Luke, which was an associate of Paul. Uh, he's mentioned in Philemon, the book of Philemon. Uh, he was also known as a physician, so he's kind of got a clinical approach to writing. He's very, you know, straightforward. Doesn't have quite the, the level of poetry as John or something does. Um, but what's interesting about Luke is he was interested in compiling all of the stories he could find about Jesus into one sort of overview of his life and time. And so his gospel does that. And then in the book of Acts, he continues it on to be through the apostles. And most people call it Acts of the Apostles, but in reality, it is the Acts of the Apostles through Jesus or through the Holy Spirit because he is all in that book. He's ascended into heaven, but at the same time, he is constantly moving on their behalf. And so this morning, we are going to look at a passage in Luke 24, and we're going to start in verse 33, and we're going to read about 20 verses. Um, and what we're going to try to understand here is this is like the last thing that Jesus says to this group of people, the last thing he does to this group of people in Luke. And there's a reason why he's saying what he's saying and what he's trying to express. There's a term that uh, floats around in uh, theo theological circles called nominal Christian, right? I don't know if anybody's ever heard of this before. Uh, nominal Christian is someone who is a Christian in name only. They claim that they are in Christ, right? Maybe they come to church. They might read the Bible every now and then, but they don't actually put forth any of the principles that Jesus wants us to do. And so this morning, we are going to look at what it means to not be a nominal Christian, right? We don't want to be that person, right? We want to be the other guy. <laughs> so let's start in verse 33. And before I'm going to preface this, there's this really great passage that comes before here, and this is kind of part of it, and it's called the road to Emmaus, right? And it's these two disciples that have basically are going on a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus, and this is after Jesus has died. And what they do is they start walking down this road, and then this stranger appears to them and basically asks if he can walk with them. Uh, they don't know it, but it's Jesus, right? <laughs> so they don't, they're not realizing that Jesus is with them. And so what happens is they start walking, and they're talking about this great prophet that you know, lived, and they were really hoping that he would be the one, the promised one to save Israel. Uh, but instead, they, you know, they were, he died. But they've been hearing all these accounts of him being resurrected. And Jesus kind of corrects their worldview, right? And they still haven't totally figured out that this man is Jesus. And Jesus resurrected, more specifically. 
And then it's not until after they do basically what we just did here. They sit down in Emmaus, they're having dinner, and he's breaking the bread, and then all of a sudden, the light bulb goes off. This is Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is here. I mean, everybody has different speculations as to why. Maybe it was something he said. Maybe it was something he was did. Maybe it was how he did it. Maybe they saw the marks on his hands as he was serving them. Um, but all of that is irrelevant. What's relevant is they found out that it was Jesus. And they were ecstatic. They said, did our hearts not burn with fire when he was revealing the scriptures to us, right? And so... As soon as they realize it, he disappears. <laughs> he just disappears. And so these two guys who just made this seven-mile trip walking to this town immediately are like, we've got to leave, right? We've got to go. We've got to go back to the apostles and tell them what we've seen because this is amazing. So they just made this journey. It's night, and they're like, no, we've got to go right now. And so this is where we're picking up. This is verse 33. So we'll start here. And it says, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Right? So they are accounting for what happened. They're giving the recount. Now, uh, if you remember anything about, about Luke, there are passages where you know, different people have seen him off and on. And so these guys are bringing their story to the apostles to continue on with that legacy. And so right here, this is the first, first phase of being a disciple. They're, you're a seeker, right? We call it a seeker because you're seeking after God. In this particular case, uh, they're seeking the moment in which the, the apostleship and the gathering that they're going to be together. So they leave everything they have behind to go together hoping that someone else can tell them another story and another witness and maybe even see Jesus, right? And so they go and they gather together. That's kind of the key, the key per point that we need to get um, is that it says that they gathered. So in verse 36, it says, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. There he is. Jesus is there. So what's interesting about our seeking phase as, as a Christian is uh, Jesus appears to us. When we seek him, he appears to us, right? We know that we're supposed to seek first the kingdom of God, right? Those are words that we hear all the time. Uh, in Matthew 7, uh, verse 7 and 8, it says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. So if we're a seeker and we're looking for God, he will um, basically appear to us, right? He will show himself to us. Uh, I will use myself as an example for this. I, uh, I went through a phase where I kind of was living counter to my Christian lifestyle, right? I would rather spend more time uh, for myself than I would for Jesus. Uh, I would, wouldn't even talk about Jesus, didn't even read my Bible, I would gladly go have a beer at a bar or several beers at a bar and instead just didn't feel the need to, uh, to do anything. I just was resting on the assurance that I was saved, right? Uh, and then one day I picked up my Bible and I, I said these words and I wasn't even praying necessarily, but I guess I was unintentionally. And I said, you know, if this is real, reveal yourself to me. Um, and that's a dangerous thing to say 
because if you ask God to reveal himself to you, he will. Um, and when he does, you will be start, you'll start to face things and you'll start to realize things about yourself that you cannot live that way, right? When I talked well, talk to you last and we talked about the new city of Jerusalem, we talked about how sin and God cannot be together. They cannot live together. And so uh, just as Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2.20, you know, we, we die, our body dies, and we're resurrected with Christ, right? And so when you seek him and you welcome him into your life, suddenly when you are faced with him, and when you are faced with those marks and that revelation that he has paid it all for you, you can no longer live that lifestyle. And so that's the first stage, right? We're going to get a little further into it. And uh, I don't mean to offend or upset anyone in this room. You may be stuck on one of these phases, right? And that's okay. I've been stuck in some of these phases before. And if you are, at the end, just come, come up to me and we will pray. And not only will we pray, but we'll find a path to get you out of that phase. Uh, that's the important part. All right, so so we're, as we're seeking, we're seeking first the kingdom of God. He reveals himself. So it says in 36, as they were talking about these things. So they're talking about Jesus. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. And what happened in 37? But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. <laughs> they were scared. Um, the very beginning of Luke, we see a man named Zechariah. Uh, and he and his wife are the ones who give birth to John the Baptist, right? And he goes into the temple to do his ritual, part of the ritual of being in the temple. And out of nowhere, a spirit is there. It's, it's an angel, an angel of spirit, it's a, a messenger of God has come to give him this message. And he doesn't, like he can't even, his mind cannot wrap around what is being said to him. He doesn't understand, like this, this doesn't happen. The reason why it doesn't happen is because at that time period, it hadn't happened in 400 years, right? Four or 500 years. So he's the first person, he doesn't even believe it. Uh, so in this case, his mind is just like, I can't. And he had doubt and unbelief, and then he was silenced. He was silenced, and he couldn't talk until his son was born. And then the first words he said were just affirmations. It was just basically exactly what the angel told him to say, because that's all he could say. Uh, so we're first, when we see Jesus, it's almost like doubt and unbelief, right? Like, is that really real? Is this really real? Is this really happening? These guys are apostles and disciples. They walked around with Christ. They were with him every single day. And yet at the same time, they didn't even recognize him. And there's different reasons for that. I'm sure he came in a form that was different. You know, He was no longer Jesus, just a man. He was now Jesus, the man who conquered death. right? And so I'm sure it was startling to see Jesus. But what does he do afterwards? He humanizes himself so that we can actually understand what is, what is happening to us. So it says, they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why did doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. So there's a, there's a common theme with taking and eating, right? Just as he, one of the last things he did with all of them together was he served them at the table, and they took the Lord's Supper, right? Uh, 
what happened on the road to Emmaus. They didn't realize it was him until he broke the bread and, and served them. And now here he is, he's eating before them. So there's this theme that runs through at the table, the communion of God. There's something about that, that we can, we can rationalize being with him in that. And I think it's because when we, when we sit down at a table, it's when we have most people's attention, right? Like when we sit in front of someone, we actually have their attention. Uh, maybe not so much in this modern age because we have cell phones and a lot of people just want to you know, keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. But if you put those away, you can't avoid the person who's two feet in front of you. You, know? you have to listen to them. And so here, he's dining in front of them, showing that he is human, he is flesh, he has come back from the dead, and he is there. So this is the seeker phase. right? This is where we seek him and he reveals himself to us in his fullness. And then something happens, right? When we seek God, we start to transition into a different phase in our spirituality and in our, our Christian walk. And for some, it takes a while to just get past the point of what Jesus is and what Jesus did. And that's okay, because it really is a deep, deep thing to understand. But then we transition into this phase where we're, we're hearing the word of God, right? And when we're hearing the word of God, that is when he starts to really do his work in us. And so we see this here in verse 44 through 47. He says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin shall be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So here, we are transitioning. Now these apostles and disciples who have been with him this whole time still have doubt, right? They still have some level of doubt in what's going on. And so it says in verse 45, he opened their mind to understand the scriptures, right? He opened their mind. I think when we're first a Christian, or maybe even first when we are reading the Bible, there's a lot of stuff in here that just doesn't make sense. You know, it just doesn't make sense. Why is there so much death and destruction in the Old Testament? Why is everyone killing each other? Why did Jesus have to die? Like, why did he have to die, right? What's all this theology that Paul is throwing at me later on, right? It just doesn't, we don't, it's hard for us to wrap our head around it. But he opens their mind to understand the scriptures. Um, And he does so... In verse 44, he explains how he does it. He says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He is saying that every single word in this book points to him. Every single word. Um, Charles Spurgeon once said something about how he tries to point every message he can to Jesus and Christ, Christ crucified, right? And it's not a matter of how you get, it's not a matter of where it gets there, it's the matter of the road that you take to get there, right? And so he explains the scriptures by the fact that Jesus is the center of everything. He fulfilled everything, will fulfill the second coming as well, and so everything in this book somehow points to him. And then when you start reading from that transition, when you start going back, 
And you look at Genesis and you see the brokenness of humanity and you see an exodus where they were grumbling and complaining about having food, <laughs> right? And where Moses strikes a rock and there's, he does things wrong and, and, and all the Levitical laws and, and all these things that, that happen and then Saul and David and all the evil kings who burn their own children, right? You see all these things and you start realizing that God wanted a path to redemption and his way to it was through Jesus. And so every time you read one of those scriptures, you can look, okay, Jesus is the redemption point in that. And that's sometimes hard to connect, but that is the point. And so he unlocks their minds and they become hearers of the word, right? Um, and so what happens there is we start to understand what God intends for our life and what he intends for the path in which we will go, the one that he's laid forth for us. And then we have to start shaping our life around that, right? We're not supposed to be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well, right? And so we're seeing this word is making sense. And now when it's starting to make sense, then we have to start enacting on it. And so we're going to continue on a little bit further. So after he says in verse 46 and 47, he talks about why Christ had to suffer and die and rise again on the third day. Then he goes into verse 48, and it says, You are a witness of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So what happens? We become essentially a servant at this point or a kneeler, a kneeler serves, but we become a servant. And basically, we are now listening to God's word, and we are heeding to God's word, and we are allowing God's word to dictate how our life should be run. And so in this phase, first and foremost, he says that you are a witness to these things. Now, there's two meanings to this. One, he is talking to the apostles and the disciples who witnessed his death and resurrection, because they are the ones who are going to launch what we see in Acts, right? They're the ones who are going to continue on. And so they are physical witnesses of both of those things. And then he's also talking to us as new disciples that we are witnesses to him, to his story of redemption. And it is our duty to take that out. Matthew 28 talks about us going forth, right, and preaching the gospel and making disciples, right? And so making disciples is part of that process. And so he then makes a promise. In this phase, he makes a promise to us. Uh, he says, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Amen. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, sometimes power on high is, is just straight up blatant. It's the Holy Spirit. Yeah. That is what it is, right? Yeah. Uh, we can tiptoe around it as much as we want. It's the Holy Spirit. Uh, I like that this translation, though, does not reveal it yet because it really wants you to read Acts so that it becomes the fullness of what the Holy Spirit is. Uh, but he, he says one thing here. He says, to wait, right? but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So he doesn't send us out immediately. He, he just doesn't. right? So once we've made it to this hearer phase and we're, we're listening to God's word, and now we're like transitioning into a servant of God, uh, he still doesn't want us to go out yet. And the reason why he doesn't want us to go out yet is because until we are clothed with power on high, we don't have the ability to do it. Amen. We'll be acting counter to God. Yeah. We'll be acting on our own words. Uh, there's a story in Acts, and we'll get more into this later, where one gentleman meets with Paul, 
and he's been preaching the gospel. Essentially, he's been preaching about Jesus. The only difference is that he kind of ends with John the Baptist, right? He hasn't had the Holy Spirit yet. And so because he hasn't had the Holy Spirit, his, his mission just, it ends. It's a dead end. It, it can only go so far. And so until you've received the Holy Spirit, and, and there is a, a path to that, until you've received the Holy Spirit, you cannot take the message out. So let's finish this part, and then we'll go a little further. We'll, we'll read a little bit into Acts. So here's where the ascension happens, right? Where what we call the ascension is where God goes to heaven, right? So in verse 50, it says, Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Uh, so what does he do, right? He's, he's about to go. He's about to... Peace out. He says, I'm gone. Guys, I'm leaving this to you. I'm going to bless you. Right? Here you go. Here's your blessing. Right? Because blessings were a big thing in the Old Testament, to have the Father's blessing. Right? So he is now blessing his children, essentially. He's blessing them, but he still hasn't clothed them with the Holy Spirit yet. Uh, there's a test of faith that will come in the next several days. And so after he leaves and he was carried up into heaven, in verse 52, it says, And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. There's a few things that happen in that phrase, right? Uh, they first worshipped. So when they're in that servant phase, what's the first thing that they do? They worship God, right? They worship him. You can do that by prayer. You can do that by just worshipping God in a communal sense, uh, and then they returned to Jerusalem. So they went back to home, their home base, which is exactly where Jesus told them to go and to stay there, to stay, right? And then they were continually in the temple blessing God. They stayed in the temple together as a community. So when we're in that phase where we have yet to receive the Holy Spirit, and even after, it is essential for us to be embedded in the community of Christ because the community of Christ nurtures our growth. And so it's important to be in church, to be in a church, to be constantly nurtured by not just Christ, but the people who are around you, who can uplift you, the disciples, the elders, the people of faith who can help lift you into that position. And it's actually essential because that is part of the process and the journey to getting to the Holy Spirit. Amen. In Acts 2, and well, we're not going to turn there, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase. Well, we will turn there in a second. But in Acts 2, we see that finally on the, on, the, on the day of Pentecost, tongues of fire come, right? Tons, tons of fire. But what it doesn't say is that there was a time period between when he has ascended and Pentecost. It's about 10 days where they are constantly in the temple, constantly praying, constantly in this mode of worship. And that was essential. Like, it's a test of faith. It really is. If you're not going to dedicate yourself to God, if you're not going to pick up your cross and walk with him, you don't deserve the Holy Spirit. I mean, I hate to say it that way, but you don't. He's not going to give you power and then you just not do anything with it, right? Like, what is the point of the Holy Spirit if you're not going to use it? Amen. And so he, he is. He's testing us. He's testing us. He's putting us through these measures where are we really going to show ourselves with God? I was reading about how the early church operated. And the early church had a very... Very, very distinct path, right? You would come in, and uh, they would basically uh, read the scriptures to you. That's how you would start as a, as a kneeler. They would reveal Jesus to you if you were interested. They would start with the scriptures about Jesus, and then they would start going through the Old Testament and the law, uh, all in that hearer phase. 
and then they would do a very long period of time before they baptized you. Uh, a very long period of time, six months, sometimes a year, depending on how long it took to understand the scriptures, to really understand it. And then they would, when they baptized you, that was when the church officially recognized that you were receiving the Holy Spirit. And then that wasn't the end of your training by any means. That was just the beginning, right? And so then they would gather around you and constantly uplift you until you were ready to launch and go out onto a mission. And and that's what, what we're going to see in the book of Acts. Now, I want to, first and foremost, use someone as an example. Uh, the, the fourth mark, by the way, is you receive the Holy Spirit and you become a disciple. And we will learn more about that in the coming weeks. But there's one person in particular that I want to use as an example of this very distinct path, right? And that is uh, Peter. Uh, Peter is a man who I think genuinely really loved Jesus, right? Just loved Jesus, just adored him. Uh, but as on his time on earth, he just kept missing the mark. Right? He just constantly wasn't quite there. <laughs> he would say something or do something that just wasn't right. Peter, as we know, is the one who denied Jesus three times. He's also the one who uh, started to walk on water and then fell in and had to be rescued. The same guy, Cephas Peter, Simon Peter, however you want to refer to him. Um, in Luke 22, and we can turn there, it's just a few pages back, uh, Jesus says something very distinct to Peter before he denies him. And so this is right after the Lord's Supper. This is right after, you know, they had this argument about who is the greatest and all this jazz and then one person's going to deny Jesus and one person's going to betray Jesus. And so there's a lot of tension in the room, right? And so in verse 31 of chapter 22, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Simon's Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And then, of course, Peter said to him, uh, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Right? Uh, Jesus, I tell you. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will crow not this day until you deny three times that you know me. Uh, so he is, Peter, of course, is you know, blowing this off as if it's not anything uh, important. Uh, but the reality is, it is. He's saying, look, you're going to deny me three times, and it's okay. It's okay. I've accepted it. The key word here is, as, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He knows he's going to deny him. But when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. And what he's saying here is, you are going to be one of my chief apostles. Right? You're going to be one of the people that I need. So you can't do it again, right? You're going to turn again. And you might have moments of doubt. You might have moments of confusion where people want you to, where you get visions about eating elephants and stuff like that. Uh, but <laughs> strengthen your brothers, right? Strengthen your brothers. That is your call. And so, of course, what do we know? Peter denies Jesus three times. Once, twice, three times. And there's this really strange thing that happens. Right as the rooster crows, Jesus looks at Peter. Doesn't say anything to him. He looks at him. Some people would take it as a scornful thing, but I take it more as a look of grace. Like, I told you it was going to happen, and I love you still. Amen. And so what do we know about our man Peter? We're going we're to turn a little bit to Acts, um, and we're going we're gonna to basically just look at Peter's life a little bit 
And then we'll kind of break this down from here. So first and foremost, I want to look at Acts 4.13. Um, and then we're going to go back a little bit. There's something pretty interesting about Acts 4.13. Uh, because this is when the council has essentially grabbed Peter and John, right? They've grabbed them because they're tired of them talking about this guy named Jesus. Um, and so we see here it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Peter uh, was not a theologian, right? He was not a theologian. He didn't have a doctorate or a PhD. <laughs> he wasn't an educated man. But what happened? He was with Jesus, and, and as we read in the, in the past right here in Luke 24, he opened their mind to the scriptures, right? So these guys are looking at it, and by the, we're talking about the high priest and the people of the council. They're looking at, at, at him, and they're thinking, wait, this guy, this guy shouldn't know this information. How does, he, how does he know this, right? And they're saying he's uneducated. But at the same time, they were astonished by the words that he was saying. Why were they astonished? Because he had been with Jesus. And so he, Peter and John at this point have somehow unlocked the scriptures and made sense of it in a way that not even the high priest could make sense of it. And so their, their minds are blown. So what, do we, what else do we know about Peter? Let's look at Acts 2. And there is, um, we're going to look at 14. And I'm going to let you guys have some reading uh, a, little, a little later on to yourselves. So we're looking at Acts 2. And this is part of the reason why uh, the high council wanted him and probably wanted to put him to death at this point. Um, so in Acts 2, verse 14, and this is after they were filled with the Spirit, right? So the Spirit has come upon them. They now have talked in tongues. All these amazing things are happening. And uh, at this particular time in Pentecost, all these people have gathered into Jerusalem to honor this tradition. So there's a bunch of people there. And the first person to stand up is Peter. So in verse 14 it says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. And I'm not going to read this whole thing. You guys can read this later. But what happens is he basically gives a message about repenting and believing in God. But this is not the same Peter that we saw earlier. This is not the same Peter who had a lack of faith, who denied God. This, is, this can't be the same man, right? And so he is now a disciple at this point. He's received the Holy Spirit, and he is not acting on his own, but he is acting through God. God is acting through him. And so in verse 14, it says, He stands up with the eleven, lifts up his voice, and he addresses all of the people that are listening, which happens to be quite a lot. Uh, we'll find out at the end here in uh, verse 41. So they received his word, they were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Right? Peter, the guy who walked away from Jesus, who followed at a distance, was asked three times and said, no, I wasn't with him. No, I wasn't hanging out. No, that's, that's not me. Even when they were like, dude, you're a Galilean. And he's like, nah, not, nah, nah, nah not me. He is now acting completely different. Why? Because he is a disciple. He has been blessed with the Holy Spirit, and he cannot act any other way. Amen. When you have waited and then received the Holy Spirit, your discipleship is now in play. And when it is in play, God can officially use you. You can go forth, and you can make more disciples. 
Because what's interesting is, as we read through Acts, we'll see this more and more, there's times where Peter is speaking, and it's not his own words. It's the words of God that are coming out. He's using him as a vessel. And so the Holy Spirit is the key part to all of this. If you want to be a disciple, you have to have the Holy Spirit. So let's recap a little bit, first and foremost. And actually, before we do that, I want to read a little bit more of Matthew 7. So I talked about seeking and finding. And then I'm going to talk about the opposite of that. So in Matthew 7, this starts in verse 21. It says, uh, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's harsh. <laughs> Jesus is essentially saying that people who are working in his name will not make it into the kingdom of heaven. And so when we think about that term nominal Christian, right, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we working in name only? Right? Are we just saying, hey, I'm a Christian, but then we continue living our life counter to God? Or are we actually going through the process to receiving the Holy Spirit? And when you do receive the Holy Spirit, and this is my firm belief on this, I think there are points and times where you can step away. But when you have the Holy Spirit in you and burning in you, it is really hard to go the opposite direction. Because as soon as you do, it's like you, you know it. Right? You just know. You just know that you have to get back on track. And so there's just, I don't want this church to be full of nominal Christians. Right? And so I've told you my story about a time when I was a nominal Christian. Right? And so I want us all to think about where we are on that phase, on that wavelength. Where are we? Where are we? How can we get to that point where the Holy Spirit uses us as disciples, as true disciples? He blesses us, right? In Philippians 1.6, it says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Right? So there's a point in time. You may have been stopped at the hearer phase. You may have been stopped at seeker. You may be stopped at the kneeler. It doesn't matter. You may have gone with the Holy Spirit and then gone back and gone wherever. Jesus, when he begins a good work in you, he will complete it. He has chosen you for that purpose. He has chosen you for a purpose to be a disciple. And so it's just a matter of coming together in a communal effort and really asking and seeking God, how can I give my life up to you so that I can become a disciple? We don't want to be the one that Jesus says, I never knew you, right? And those words are extremely harsh because they're dedicated to the people who are surrounding him. After Acts, there's all these letters, right, that Paul writes, James writes, John writes. They're all letters to churches that have essentially kind of gone awry, right? Maybe gotten, a little, gotten it a little wrong here or gotten it a little wrong there. Maybe their idea of circumcision is wrong or maybe how they're taking communion is wrong. And what they do is they write these letters not to correct and to uh, simply just push them aside, but rather to fix the problem. The church is supposed to fix the problem. And so this morning, the church is the place where you come to repair those wounds, to get right with God, 
I don't even like that phrase, but I, it does make sense in this, right? To get right with God. And not only to get right with God, but to get on the path of discipleship. Jesus doesn't want you to stop at a hearer phase. He doesn't want you to stop at a seeker phase. His desire is for you to be a disciple. So, questions of the day is, how can we be a disciple? How can we be in that place where we can go forth? Um, When I talked about myself, I was not the person to come up here and to talk about faith. And so it is extremely not of my own (laughs) to be up here. And every time I come up here, I ask God two things, uh, two two very distinct things. One, uh, use me the way you want me to be used. Have the, the Holy Spirit take its way so that I am not working on my own. And then two, Um, As I told Dasha the other day, uh, there's a passage in Ezekiel where he feeds him a scroll. It's essentially God's word. God feeds Ezekiel a scroll, and he says, say this, right? And he can't say anything other than that. And so I keep asking God to give me this scroll that he wants me to say. I'm using myself because I don't want to judge anyone in this room. I don't want to be the judgment because we're not supposed to be. I can judge me. So... As you go forward this week, I think you should ask those questions. How can God use me? How can he reveal himself to me? How can he use me? Not only how can he use me, but how can I take what he has given me and put it forth into the community that as I go large? Because we are supposed to go forth, right? Go forth and make disciples. But we can't make disciples if we are not disciples. And so this morning, um, I really want us to just take a moment to reflect on that. Where are you in this phase? So the seekers are the ones who seek God and he reveals himself to them. The hearers are the ones who are dedicated to his word. They cling to it. The kneelers are waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And then the disciples are the ones who have received and are enacting the promise. And so, Lord, I I just want to say a prayer before we go. I just uh, come to you this morning and I encourage everyone in this room to move past whatever phase they have got stuck at and to realize that there are people in this church who want to help them move past those phases. This is not a single effort. This is a community and a communal effort. And we don't want anyone here to get hung up and to get off the way, right? Jesus believes that we are the sheep, right? The one who has gone astray and he wants to bring us back into his fold. And so this morning... I just ask that everyone's heart will be welcome to you. Will be welcome to your presence. Will be welcome to the gifts that he's provided. And in doing so, will seek more of you. And when they do, they will find you. And when they find you, they will hear you. And when they hear you, they will know you. And when they know you, they and the Holy Spirit will guide them in the way that they should go. And so, Lord, I just give you thanks and glory for being in this room with the saints, with your elect. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So thank you this morning, Jesus' holy name.